You're listening to Inside the Boardroom from Onboard. I'm your host, Adam Wire from Onboard. On today's podcast, we'll hear a conversation with Matt Fulbrook, board effectiveness researcher, educator, and consultant, and founder of Fulbrook Board Effectiveness and Ground Up Governance. Matt will share how boards can abandon the status quo on everything from meeting setup to attracting new types of board members to how to problem solve and more. And with me today is a very special guest, Matt Fulbrook. Uh, Matt is a board effectiveness researcher, educator, and consultant, a, a, a renaissance man, really. Uh, <laughs> if, if his uh, camera background is any indication, um, not only is he in a funk band called KCLR, which we will get to momentarily, uh, he is the founder of Fulbrook Board Effectiveness and Ground Up Governance. He is an executive in residence at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Um, you can check out Matt's Atlas Leadership Series webinar that we recorded here at Onboard from last December. The topic was abandoning, abandoning the governance status quo. And uh, if you want to learn more about Matt, you can find him at mattfulbrook.com. Matt, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. I'm happy to be here. So uh, did I leave anything out? I mean, you, you got a lot going on. Oh yeah, no, I'm an extremely impressive person. There's there's tons that's missing, but uh, but I know I'm happy. That was a great intro. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about KCLR first. I mean, anybody yeah. that's going to be watching this is going to notice the guitars in the background. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm super spoiled. So I've got this this great privilege to spend a big chunk of my life working with with the most senior corporate leaders in a lot of different parts of the world. But in the meantime, I've got this this not so secret life as a professional musician. And my main activity as a musician is I'm a bass player in a band called KC Roberts and the Live Revolution, also known as KCLR. And we're based in Toronto. It's all original. We put out our seventh original LP last year. It's called Grit. Uh, the band is unbelievable. I'm just so spoiled to be able to have a rich musical life in addition to a rich professional life. So, no, thanks for asking. Anyone who's interested, uh, there's tons of stuff on Apple or Spotify or YouTube or wherever you listen to music. And, and to your point, Matt, on, on your website, mattfulbrook.com, I believe you have a section devoted to the band. So uh, so the, the Renaissance yeah. man uh, persona uh, is very is very evident on your website. Well, it's not really a secret. And, you know, it's interesting that you meet more musicians and other artists than you would think on this journey through boardrooms and, and senior executive ranks. And it's way easier to build a meaningful relationship with somebody through music than it is by talking about boards. So it's actually a kind of a useful shortcut because nobody says, eh, I don't I don't really care about music. Whereas a lot of people say, eh, I don't really want to talk about boards. So it's actually a really useful relationship builder and conversation starter. And you also find more musical friends. And in fact, uh, one good example is my good friend, Kev Cowan, who's the chair of the Ontario Securities Commission here in Canada, is an amazing musician, a great guitarist and singer and songwriter. And we met originally through music just before we'd even learned about our governance overlap. And we've retained this great friendship and we play tunes every once in a while. And, and, you know, he couldn't have a better, more influential friend as well as an, a brilliant musician and an amazing guy. So, you know, it's fun to have friends and connect beyond the sort of professional stuff. Absolutely. And and, and we're, we're feel free to interject the music, uh, at, at the music talk, I should say, at any point. Sure. Uh, I, don't, I don't expect you to grab a guitar off the wall and play it at, at, at any juncture. But, uh, you know, it's, if you'd it's, given it's, me more notice, I could have had all that stuff set up and you'd be able to hear it. 
<laughs> Maybe with a little bit of preparation, we could have pulled that off. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Matt, uh, you take a very uh, outside the box approach to board governance, which I think is is going to be of interest to a lot of folks that are watching and listening to us. Um, but what got you interested in board work in the first place? And I guess what led you to the approach that you currently have toward boards where, you know, maybe the old traditional way of doing things isn't the way we should be doing them in 2023. Yeah. You know, so, so you asked a big question and I apologize in advance if my answer scoops a whole bunch of your other questions, but, but follow me down this journey. Uh, so I, the, the, origin of my story in governance, you wouldn't believe anything other than the truth, which is that it was completely by accident. But one of the great aspects of it being an accident is that it happened when I was really young. I've, I've been in the space almost 25 years by now. And as far as I know, I'm the only person in Canada who's got both 20 plus years behind me and 20 plus years ahead of me in this space. And the origin of the story was just a complete accident. But once, so this is early 2000s, right in the wake of Enron and WorldCom and Nortel and Tyco and Parmalat and all these, these really high profile global governance catastrophes. And I had no awareness or interest in the space, but the fact that there was gravity to the projects that I was working on, and this was at the University of Toronto, the fact that there was gravity because of these catastrophes meant that, okay, sure, it starts as an accident, but the opportunity for to make an impact was really enduring and continues to endure, endure to this day. So here's where I might start scooping you a bit is the nature of most of the projects that I worked on was pretty conventional, right? And the 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 most significant influential projects that I worked on were what I would what are generally called board ratings, which are we publish once a year two different sets of board ratings where we'd say one of them was published in the national newspaper here, the Globe and Mail, is called Board Games. Board Games is a ranking of the top 250 or so listed companies based on a huge number of criteria. I think there's a, over 100 questions, but behind the 100 questions, there were 450 variables. Each of those was derived from reading proxies and, uh, and annual reports and so on. And then we'd give them a grade uh, or a score and they'd get ranked. And the, the implication being, if you're at the top of the list, you have good governance, or even the best governance. If you're at the bottom, you have the worst. Now, I, I, I worked on and ran the data collection for that project for from 2002 to when I resigned from the university. I still have a position, a, a sort of formal position there, but I, I don't have a, a, I don't actually do work at the university anymore. But I resigned in 2021. So for 20-ish years, I basically embraced this idea that disclosure, right, which is what we were measuring, reading proxies, reading annual reports, and assigning a score based on disclosure. Disclosure is a, a proxy for good governance. And then when I resigned, I had some space to kind of step back from that and step back not just from the projects that I'd done, but the impact that I'd had, the types of models and education that are out there for boards and so on and so on, and ask, 
is disclosure good governance? Is any sort of box ticking compliance good governance? Right? Is there any way that we could say, all right, as long as you do these five, ten, a hundred, a thousand things, you have good governance? And I sort of started feeling like the answer is no, not for not for only one reason, but for about a million reasons, which I won't get into. But then I asked myself, if that's not good governance, then what is? And actually, if you'd asked me, but when I was still working at the university to, to, to define good governance, I would have said some version of, I'm exaggerating only a little bit to be silly. I would have said some version of, well, well good governance is governing a corporation well. And I mean, I challenge you, Adam, if you go out and look at whatever other definitions of good governance are out there, especially the ones by influential publications or thinkers or speakers, none of them leave you with a sense of, oh, okay, now I know what to do as a senior executive or a board member to walk into the room next time and do a great job. So I'm going to pause there for a second. I know I've left a bit of a cliffhanger, but I want to make sure that I've actually answered your question. Yeah, it's uh, but but you make a good point about the uh, the definition of board governance. It's almost like a lot of the responses you get are word salad. At least that's been uh, the impression that I have. Okay, I I, I I'm really not trying to throw anyone under the bus, but it, I, it's it's so funny that I think it's worth checking out. Is if anybody wants the the word the worst word salad that there is when it comes to good governance, there's a very good book called Corporate Governance by um, Robert Monks and Nell Minow, who are both extremely influential. Robert Monks founded ISS, and Nell Minow is known as the queen of corporate governance. They're they're both great, but their definition of good governance is really something. So okay. anyone who's interested, look up the book. Corporate Governance by Robert Monks and Nell Minow. And they're, in one sentence, they use the word system three times. Okay. Yeah. It's now, one you of have a definition. And getting back to, uh, we were talking about your background earlier. Uh, a big part of the definition is sitting right behind you. Would you like to expand on it? Yeah. Thanks for asking. So before this right here on the board behind me is, is what Adam's talking about. What it says is... I'll make sure I get it right. Intentionally cultivate effective conditions, which is a fragment. It's the fragment of my de of my definition that actually fits on the board. Um, so let me tell a little bit of, I'll just explain a little bit of where this came from, is I had actually for a number of years started thinking of corporate governance without the word good in front of it, just sort of a value, a judgment-free corporate governance as the sum total of all the decisions that happen in an incorporated entity. That's that's. I'm not trying to convince anybody else to think that way. That's just my sense because I would meet, for instance, a startup or a small family enterprise that, sure, I mean, I guess on paper it has a board, but functionally speaking, the board isn't really a thing. And we'd like to think of corporate governance as belonging in the domain of a board, but Really, do those little family businesses or those startups not have governance simply because they don't have a formal board? And I that just didn't fit. It didn't sit right with me, right? And I started thinking, okay, well, maybe I've convinced myself that governance isn't just a board thing. But then, what is it? And I thought it's just the the people in the organization making decisions, regardless of what level those decisions happen. So, 
Some decisions maybe do get made by a board or senior executives. Some decisions get made by people on the front lines, which influence their managers, which influence their managers, which ultimately influence the board, right? The influence of these decisions is going both directions. And some decisions get made with deep intention. Some just sort of get made by accident or ad hoc. And some get made by groups and some get made by individuals and, 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 right? And so if that, if the sum total of all that is corporate governance, according to my thinking, then what could good look like? And the first thing that I had to acknowledge was we're making decisions under conditions of uncertainty, meaning we don't know what the result of the decision is going to be until it's made, right? So it can't be, good governance can't be results, right? Because then we're just, basically good governance is good luck. And I don't like the idea that good governance and good luck are the same. Maybe we can increase the probability of a good result, but we can never know for sure. So if we can't know what's going to happen, there's always the possibility things are going to turn out badly, no matter what we do. So good governance has to be something different from good results or the, a decision that has a good result. But what do we have control over if we don't have control over the results is the inputs. And I tried to think of a way to articulate what, how can I explain or describe good governance in a way that talks about the inputs in a way that kind of inspires us, like the opposite of those other definitions that are out there that inspires us to say, oh, okay, you know what? The moment that I hear this definition, I kind of have an idea of what I could do simple or complex when I walk in the room to kind of do good governance. So where I'm at now, it may not be perfect. The full definition that I use now is good governance, good corporate governance is intentionally cultivating effective conditions for making decisions. The one thing that I know is kind of missing or that leaves a follow-up question is what the heck do you mean by conditions, right? Conditions is doing a lot of work. In this, in this definition here. And it's fair, right? That's a fair criticism. And the answer is even more unfair, which is conditions is literally anything that can affect your decision. And some of those things are systemic, like the regulations and laws that you, that you work within or the, the systems that you work within. Some of them are really mundane, like have we eaten? Was the food any good? Did we, do we have coffee? What's the temperature like? What are the lighting? What's the lighting like? And, and some of them are more sort of typical corporate governance topics like what information are we sharing and how and when? What skills and personalities and, and cultures and, and, you know, all that stuff do we have in the room to, at hand to try to make these decisions? And what's our corporate structure and, and so on, right? So there's all kinds of different things. Every single one of them affects our decisions. And I'm arguing that the difference between good governance and not good governance is being intentional about those conditions. And I'll give one really silly example just to, to illustrate what I'm talking about is there's in almost any condition you can think of there's some good science about how it affects either people's cognitive performance or their decision-making. And one example is the, um, I can't remember which one was Northwestern and which one was Cornell, but there are two studies, one by Northwestern, one by Cornell. One of them was about lighting in stores. One of them was about lighting in restaurants. And they both basically found the same thing. Dim lighting causes people to make pleasurable purchases or buy unhealthy food. 
and bright lighting causes people to make practical purchases or buy healthy food. And that's not because we <laughs> yeah, right, right. And this, this is not because people, you walk into a restaurant and say, ooh, it's bright lighting, I better order healthy food. It's because it's it just affects us unconsciously. It changes the way that we make decisions. And it's a practical, measurable phenomenon that we know will change the way that the individuals and groups at hand in our decision-making will behave. Does that mean I know what the right lighting is for your board meeting? No, but it does raise some interesting questions. For One being, oh, well, should we be playing with the lighting to see how it affects us during our board meetings is question number one. But then maybe two, what are some analogies between like buying pleasurable stuff and buying practical stuff that we might want to think about. Maybe we, when we're reviewing our financials, the lighting should be bright. And when we want to dream about the future, the lighting should be dim. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not making an argument here. I'm just sort of illustrating that this is a condition that a, it costs nothing to, to other than a little bit of imagination it costs nothing to be intentional about. It's super easy and non-controversial and scientifically speaking, it matters. So don't try to argue to me that it doesn't affect corporate governance. Matt, the lighting conversation you just had was a was all, an almost perfect segue into the next topic. Okay. Uh, the uh, you know we talk about your outside the box approach to board governance. I think part of that, at least I'm guessing, part of that involves defeating stereotypes. Sure. Uh, the stereotype that I hear a lot and and lots of folks I know have of board members is it's old white men wearing jackets and ties sitting around a rectangular or uh, or oval-shaped oak table making important decisions. I suspect a lot of that stereotype is inaccurate in 2023. Boards are more diverse, although they could become more diverse still. Um, meetings are held remotely or in a hybrid format. Dress is more casual. I, I wonder how much the stereotype or template discourages folks who don't fit neatly into that box from joining boards. What would you say to folks like that to encourage them to, to seek out a board? Yeah, I think... And there's a, I have a lot of, of intersecting thoughts about this, and I, I, I won't even try to explore all of them. I think there's, there are really specific conventional approaches to, or conventional thinking about what boards are supposed to be that are both still, they're still sticky, right? They're still true. You can, would, I don't think many people would be, would walk into most boardrooms and go, whoa, I'm really surprised at who was in the room, right? I think there's still a lot of, of really sticky conventional things. And so that's one. And I don't think those conventions are as helpful as most boards might think. So I'll give an example. I'll give a sort of generic example. When one of the questions that I don't think boards ask themselves very frequently, sometimes never, is... What's the difference between a great director and someone who's just sort of showing up and doing the job? And, and I, I annoyingly ask that question of boards frequently. And you might hear them say, to be fair, we need people in the room who actually understand our industry well enough to be able to scrutinize performance and so on. Great. But beyond that, mostly you hear, well, a great director 
is willing to change their mind when presented with new information. They are really good at listening to others' perspectives and synthesizing them. They're good at creating space for other people to participate and feel good participating. They're, they're good at speaking truth to power, or they're good at having the confidence to ask kind of naive questions or admit when they don't know something or, 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 right? The, so if that's the difference between a great board member and an okay board member, why doesn't that live on the skills matrix? And because obviously we want to recruit great board members, not just okay board members. And so if we think about that list of stuff that I just described, and then we try to imagine a person who is willing to change their mind and speak truth to power and, 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 and that person looks like literally anybody, young, old, any race, any sort of style or vibe, anything. And there's also a lot of things that sort of suggest, and, and we may come to this later if we have time, that sort of suggest that it's not all it's cut out to be to have a whole bunch of executives in the boardroom or a whole bunch of technical experts in the boardroom. There's a lot of different sort of complexities that actually kind of point us towards, okay, maybe we need a couple of experts, but we also want some people who are going to challenge those experts or push against things or say, you know what, I'm not going to move forward until I, a lay person, am, uh, understand this well enough to be able to endorse it. So getting back to your original question, I think there's a lot of space for people who I don't think would, not only are they intimidated by the status quo force, but there might be people out there who it would never even occur to them that being on a board is a thing they could consider. And I'm not trying to make the argument that anybody belongs in a boardroom. In fact, I think that that being a great board member is a bit of an idiosyncratic skill. But it's not, I think we've misdefined what great is, or we've not put enough thought into what great is when we create our skills matrix that's just about experience, Right. Because experience is not the difference between a great board member and an okay board member. In fact, we, if we think and if, if we kind of open the aperture a little bit and think about what makes or has the potential to make us great, we would be interested in seeking out people who otherwise wouldn't usually think of themselves as an appropriate candidate for a board. And then we end up getting a whole different type of diversity than what we even usually aim for when we talk about diversity in boardrooms. Very good. So um, to change the subject a little bit, um, but, but but tied in somewhat because it's 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 a little bit about the the uh, the makeup of a board. Right. Um, so at Onboard, we have uh, on our website uh, a, a great resource. Our blogs. It's at onboard.com forward slash blogs. Uh, just about any question that you have about a board. Uh, if Matt doesn't have the answer, hopefully we do. And if people <laughs> want to the answer, I'm pretty confident we're both working on it, uh, on getting there. Um, anyway, very recently we published a couple of kind of hot button topics uh, surrounding boards, a couple of blogs about those topics. One of which is how to remove a board member. And another one is how to deal with a toxic board member. Uh, Matt, when you were on with us at the Atlas Leadership Series webinar last fall, um, I came across a quote from that webinar that reminded me of those blog topics. And what you said was, one change in the vibe of a group of people can take decision-making capacity from 100% to 0%, and no amount of compliance is going to address this issue. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so this is, it's a really, I like that quote. Thanks for sharing. Um, 
I, I, I was pretty smart a year ago. Hey, so <laughs> I, this is a really cool example of one of the things that I like about this definition over my shoulder, intentionally cultivating effective conditions for making decisions is it helps to kind of debunk some myths about good governance, not the least of which is we have a tendency to think of good governance and compliance as equal. And we, in fact, spend a significant amount of effort and time and money on consulting and education that reinforces that thinking, right? That where, where directors will come into the room kind of indoctrinated to be compliance machines and catastrophe avoiding machines and, you know, compliance machines, and then complain to people like you and me afterward that, oh, well, we're not being sufficiently strategic or we're not being sufficiently right. So they, 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 we walk into the room and, and do compliance, but we don't spend enough energy worrying or being interested in, okay, but like, are we even, do we even like each other? Are we even able to get the best out of each other? Are we able to to ask ourselves, look, something just went wrong here, right? Something, the vibe felt weird. Uh-huh. How much does that matter, right? Sure, we ticked all the compliance boxes, but something really uncomfortable just happened. What are we going to do about that? And so you you framed this in the like getting rid of of directors or toxic directors or, or whatever. And I'm not sure that I'm the right expert to say, all right, you know what, the exact steps that you need to take to get rid mm-hmm. of an underperforming director are A, B, and C, because that's actually quite specific depending on your organizational structure and ownership and so on. But right. I do think that there's a couple things that I would love to see change. I think it would be really amazing if we could shift the I'm going to use a bit of a loaded word, so forgive me. Shift the entitlement of directors a little bit. And I'm not, this is not a criticism of directors who feel entitled to their board seats as much as, a, as it is a criticism of the system that, that encourages people to think that they are there because they earned it. And mm-hmm. that because they earned it, they deserve it, they deserve to stay. And I think it's a much more constructive way to think about a board seat as all of us being interested in each seat being as optimized as possible, right? So I should be excited to wonder, what could I do better tomorrow? What, right, how could I show up in this room better tomorrow than I did yesterday? And I wonder if there's someone out there with the potential to be even greater than me. And if I found that person and they ended up sitting in this seat instead of me, that's actually a win for all of us. Right, I'm not entitled to this seat. It's we should be very interested in what does great mean for this board, and thinking about and that, this is those those moments where the vibe is great or awful, but it's also you know how is this organization changing? What perspectives might we need to dream about a better future than the than the past? How what skills or personalities or perspectives will help us win, and there's a 0% chance that I am the best person out of the 8 billion people in the world to sit in this seat. There's, or there's like the one in 8 billion chance that I'm the perfect person. So there's a high probability that we could find someone better than me. I should be excited to look for that. And I think that, that that's one of the great obstacles to 
solving this, how do we get rid of an underperforming director or how do we deal with a toxic director thing is people feel entitled to their seat. They feel like they've earned it. I don't think that's the right perspective. Yeah, that, that, that's a good perspective. And I, and I definitely see that in, uh, in, in positions of power, even beyond the boardroom, you know, you see it in politics Agreed. too. Don't want to go down that road, but, uh, but definitely good perspective. Um, Matt, I want to circle back to um, a conversation we had earlier on in the podcast about boardroom setup. Yeah. Um, you recently came across, you know, we talk about the stereotype of the the, the old oak table. Uh, you recently came across as an example of a different setup that was born out of COVID safety precautions that you think could be an effective approach for boards moving forward. It was kind of a classroom setup. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me give a tiny bit of not backstory specifically to that, uh, but backstory to why this, this became an interesting topic to me, because if you think about being intentional about conditions, a lot of the conditions that affect us when we're making a decision as a group are environmental, right? Our physical space. And I've been in about 350 boardrooms now, and mm -hmm. I, I constantly challenge people to sort of close their eyes and picture a boardroom. And and in your mind's eye, I don't care who you are, when you picture a boardroom, you're picturing a thing that I know exactly what it is. And that's exactly what boardrooms look like. I've seen very few counterexamples. In, in all of those boardrooms I've been in, all of them are that, or all except for the ones where there's too many board members for that to work. So they use like an auditorium style. Uh, and so if... If you ask as a follow-up question, okay, so now you've pictured a boardroom, tell me what that layout is good for. And we can think of some things, right? It's really good for unidirectional information flow from the one end of the table where the, the lectern and the, the, the presentation screen are to the rest of the people at the table. It's good for that. If you're an oval or a circle shape rather than a square, a square or a rectangle. It's actually pretty good for sight lines. You can look everybody in the eye. It's good for voting. You can hear everybody pretty well, but not much else, right? It's not optimized for many other things than that. And I don't think I've just described what makes a great board, receiving information, seeing each other, hearing each other and voting. Mm -hmm. And most of us can think of, if you ask, if you ask a board member or ask anybody, okay, if you could like just Imagine boardrooms had never existed before. Tear it down and rebuild it. What would you think of including? Most people wouldn't rebuild it as it is. And then the question comes up like, well, okay, why do board, even new boardrooms, why do they look like that? And it's just because that's what boardrooms look like. It's not because, we're, again, understand. we're not being intentional, right? We're saying, oh, well, well, that's just what a boardroom is. So that brings to the example that you're describing when I was sort of out there obnoxiously sharing or asking these questions, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who said, you know, we had a, my board had this, uh, this offsite where it was in the middle of COVID, but we really, really wanted to be in person. So we, we asked a venue to figure out a setup for us where we could have the appropriate distancing, but still be in the same room at the same time and still get the stuff done that we wanted to do. And they didn't, they didn't know what the venue was going to give them. And so it ended up being a bit of a surprise. And what they had was like little, the chair desk combinations that you'd have in school on wheels. 
Now, the brilliance of this was not obvious to them up front until they found themselves spontaneously reconfiguring to mm -hmm. suit the different types of conversations that they wanted to have. So maybe they'd go into a circle when they wanted to be in a circle. Maybe they'd break off into small groups. Maybe they'd go in pairs. And I'm not saying we want to have just sort of random layout chaos all through our board meetings, but the fact that that this type of furniture enabled us to have different layouts to suit different parts of the agenda, it, I mean, it's really cool to me. I, again, it may not be perfect, but it's a lot better than just doing a thing because that's what boardrooms look like without actually asking the question whether it's useful or working for us or not. Yeah, it very much seems like a, a that's how we've always done it approach. And when I came across the classroom type setting example, that uh, that that really struck me. And, it, and I forgot the wheels part. So I'm glad you mentioned that because the wheels, as you said, you know, enabled folks to to move around and reconfigure as needed. Which right. you know, boards have to be agile, right? So that's kind of a kind of a literal example of that. Yeah, you know, it's it, one of the things that I've I've been saying for the last few months as I've been absorbing all this stuff is if you think through all the changes and innovations in workspace over the last hundred some odd years from like factory floors to cubicles to open concept to hoteling to work play to whatever, I mean, the rest, all through the rest of our organizations, we've been interested in creating environments that make people as effective as possible. And every single one of those things goes from the top of the organization or from the bottom to the top and stops at the boardroom. And boardrooms just are not places. I, I've started saying boardrooms are places where creativity go to die. And, and I think that, that it might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's that, that puts it in a lot of perspective for sure. Um, so so we're, we're nearing the end, Matt. I wanted to uh, make sure I, I, I broached this topic to you. Uh, I remember recently reading someone, I can't remember who, but they said, so many people don't offer an opinion on a topic until they're asked for it. And then they decide this two minute old makeshift opinion they came up with on a whim is their new hill to die on. Uh, you hear that a lot more in the political world than you do in others, yeah. but I but I think there there's an application to the board. Uh, I recall uh, during uh, the Atlas webinar that you appeared with us last year, uh, you were talking about how most board meetings currently play out. You said, "How many people have you met in your life who are able to spontaneously generate brilliant strategic insights when you point a finger at them and ask for one?" I would argue that number is zero. And the conditions we put people under in a boardroom are basically expecting them to do that. Um, is that the way you currently see things? And what's the solution? I was full of zingers during that webinar, hey? Uh, so, uh, no, I, the, you're right. So the, I, get, I get a lot of a lot of phone calls from directors and CEOs and board chairs and so on. Among the top types of phone calls that I get are from board chairs who will say something along the lines of, look, I have this person on the board. They're so smart. Every time they say anything, it's just game changing. Problem is they like never speak up no matter how many times I point my finger at them and tell them to talk. Yeah. And, and I sort of think of it and I don't always say it this snarky, but I'll, I think about those chairs, like, does it, doesn't this maybe sound like you're the problem? You know, if you think the only solution is to point a finger at someone who's clearly introverted and say, 
talk mm-hmm. now because you're always super smart. And so I think there's this, we have this, this concept in our minds that to be, uh, what's the, the, to be the right type of person who belongs in a boardroom, you've got to be able to just confidently speak up and, and, and say your thing, no matter what problem is most of us, as I said, in our webinar, apparently most of us, when we do, when we are asked to spontaneously generate some kind of great insight, we're just kind of making up some nonsense, right? All of us work much better when we're given an opportunity to think and synthesize, maybe have a conversation with other people and hear other perspectives, and then sort of start arriving at a position that we feel a little bit more confident in and that we're willing to back. And I think there are, you know, we, of of course, in boardrooms, we're dealing with information asymmetry and uncertainty and time constraints and all these things but there's there are ways to manage that and one really easy one here's a super simple hack for this kind of problem is why don't we if there's a conversation that we really want people to have during our board meeting and we're hoping that they will be able to generate useful strategic insights why don't we give them one or two or three provocative questions a week in advance and say hey why don't you spend some time thinking about this and we'll make sure to have some time during the board meeting to debrief and hear everybody's perspectives so that we're not just sort of hoping people can generate these things spontaneously. Yeah. Love it. Great stuff, Matt. Thank you so much um, for, for your time and for your insight. I wanted to give you an opportunity at, at, at the very least as a thank you for joining us on our podcast uh, you're, you're part of, you're pretty well established in the podcast world yourself. <laughs> um, I love the one minute governance concept. You've also got a, a, a podcast called sound up governance. Uh, if you could start by talking about the one minute governance concept, how does it work? How has it evolved since you started? What are some common topics? And then maybe talk, tell us about sound up governance and what you do there. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. So one minute governance came from, me realizing that I had a bunch of stuff that I wanted to express and I wasn't really, I didn't have a platform at the time that I felt was appropriate to express those things. And this was before I went completely rogue, by the way, I I had a a few idiosyncratic perspectives on governance, but I hadn't gone completely off the map like I am now. And honestly, I tried, I thought about videos, I thought about articles, I thought about like, you know, should I write a book, whatever it was. And podcasting was almost the last thing I wanted to do because I don't really, I'm a little bit more interested in podcasts now, but at the time I didn't like podcasts at all, mostly because I found them way too long. I, I I was, uh, I'm the type of person when I'm commuting, I'm listening to music. I'm, I, you know, I, I I do a lot of reading and so on, but most of my spare time, I'm not listening to podcasts. And so I thought, who wants to listen to anyone talk? And sorry about this, everybody. Who wants to listen to anybody talk for half an hour or 60 minutes? Uh, I hope some of you. And and so I thought, okay, well, how do I how do I kind of get around this? And that's where the one minute thing came. And so I I. I created 50 episodes to start that are all between 60 and 90 seconds for the most part. And they explore a question or a topic and, 
and try to provide a, a quirky perspective on it or illustrate that a complex, something that seems complex is actually kind of simple or something that seems simple is actually complex and give people a little bit of a new framing. And I'm up to now season four. We're actually wrapping up season four. There's almost 200 episodes. This whole season that's about to wrap up is all about conditions. So being intentional about these conditions, well, you want some examples of conditions and how to be intentional about them. There are going to be about 50 of those uh, by the end of this month. And, uh, and it's been super fun. And then SoundUp Governance is part of my GroundUp Governance platform, which has been an amazing experience making this. It's The platform is kind of equal parts encyclopedia and graphic novel and podcast and kind of nerdy governance meeting place. And I work with a, an amazing illustrator called Nate Schmold. Uh, if anyone wants to check him out, he's just uh, he's been one of the great creative partners of my life. And he uh, he and I build so we've got definitions of jargon to try to simplify and uh, encourage people not to be so serious about some of the the comp th seemingly complex stuff around governance but also to try to make sure what that we're trying like when we use these jargon words we actually mean the same thing as each other and then the podcast piece is an interview based thing like what we're doing now adam and i find people who don't usually get platforms related to governance, but who I know have really cool perspectives on things that actually matter so that when we tune into sound up governance, those of us who are in the governance world, we're hearing voices that we don't usually hear. And I, I, by the, I mean that from partly from a diversity perspective, but also from an expertise perspective, right? We're, now that we live in the world of decision making or that I live in the world of decision making, we don't have to only use resources that have the headline corporate governance, which are mostly about compliance. We can look at all kinds of cool resources that have the headline of decision making. And then we've got this great new cast of characters that we can explore with. And so I try to have a lot of those people on the podcast and, and make the connections between what they do and what happens in boardrooms. So there's a long winded answer to a very generous question. Uh, thanks, Adam. <laughs> Well, fantastic. And, and and good luck with the podcast in the future, Matt. Thank you for joining us here on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your insight and, 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 and your outside the box thinking. I love it and uh, hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been a great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.